Hi, this is Denise reading to you the Thursday, December 14th, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, mostly sunny and colder, and tonight, clear with rising temperatures, a high of 35 with a low of 27. On Friday, milder with plenty of sunshine, a high of 49 with a low of 37. On Saturday, partly sunny, a high of 47 with a low of 38. On Sunday, sun through high clouds, a high of 50 with a low of 45. And on Monday, a.m. rain, then breezy thunderstorms at night, a high of 54 with a low of 41. The sun will rise today at 7 o'clock a.m. and set at 4.11 p.m. for a total of 9 hours and 11 minutes of daylight. In the lottery, the numbers game dated Wednesday, December 13th, midday, 0591. Again, 0591. The numbers game evening, 3480. Again, 3480. Mass cash for Wednesday, December 13th. 10, 14, 16, 22, 25. Again, 10, 14, 16, 22, 25. Powerball for Wednesday, December 13th. 3841. 56, 64, with a Powerball of 18. Again, 3, 8, 41, 56, 64, with a Powerball of 18. And Lucky for Life, dated Wednesday, December 13th. 8, 35, 37, 39, 46, with a Lucky Ball of 7. Again, 8, 35, 37, 39, 46, with a lucky ball of seven. On the front page, concerns lingering over Barnstable Wind Project by Park City Wind gets key approval by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Offshore wind developer Ambergrid on Monday received state approval to land power transmission cables for its 804 megawatt Park City Wind Project under Barnstable's Craigville Beach. The cables would then be routed to a new substation planned on Chute Flying Hill Road, then to an existing Eversource substation for connection to the ISO New England grid. The state energy facilities sitting board's unanimous decision on the company's petition to construct and operate the project followed a more than five-hour hybrid hearing on Monday. It included six pages of amendments to last month's 232-page provisional decision approved with conditions meant to address any environmental issues. Amber Grid is pleased that the Energy Facilities Sitting Board voted unanimously to approve our proposal to interconnect 800 megawatts of offshore wind power to the New England grid at Craigsville Beach, representing a critical milestone for the project, said Amber Grid spokesperson Craig Gilvarg on Tuesday afternoon. Barnstable intervener status denied. The board on Monday also denied the town of Barnstable's request to be named a limited intervener, saying it could not grant that at the last minute without setting a precedent.
Instead of deliberating on the town's points, the state board directed Ambergrid to meet expeditiously with the town to discuss the town's recommended conditions and to report back to the board by January 5th. We'll make it happen, town attorney Charles McLaughlin said at the hearing's conclusion. It's possible to make changes to the decision based on the discussion, according to the sitting board. The issues could also be incorporated into the host community agreement, the board suggested, though the town and the company have already drafted an agreement and would need to agree to amend it. Gilvarg said the company's leaders also concur with the sitting board condition to require a meeting between the company and Barnstable town officials to resolve any outstanding matters related to the project. What are Barnstable's remaining Park City wind concerns? Among the lingering concerns are electromagnetic fields related to power lines and what effects they could have on public health. The town would like to see monitoring done at intervals all along the route. The cables will take from the beach to the substation. The Conservation Commission is already requiring this at the beach and Centerville River for a time after the project becomes operational. But McLaughlin said it does not extend beyond that limited geography. Another concern is the amount of dielectric fluid, a substance used as an insulator in high-voltage systems, proposed to be stored at the substation site. The town and Ambergrid previously agreed to a substantial containment system at the planned substation at 8 Chute Flying Hill Road as a part of the host community agreement signed in May of 2022. That plan calls for bathtub-type structures around every component that contains dielectric fluid at the substation, mainly the transformers. The containment system, with enough capacity for full volume of dielectric fluid plus 30 inches of rainfall, is designed to prevent any fluid, if ever leaked out of a substation equipment, from entering the ground below. The same system was agreed to between the town and Vineyard Wind. West Barnstable resident Cliff Carroll isn't convinced. He said the full amount of dielectric oil proposed to be stored at the site, 125,000 gallons, was not brought to light until last Friday. That's in addition to 45,000 pounds of cooling gas, referred to as SF6, he said, noting the Federal Environmental Protection Agency rates it as the most potent of all greenhouse gases. Peter Hansen, a longtime commissioner with the Centerville Osterville Marston's Mills Water District, shares the concerns about the amount of insulation fluids that will be stored on site. I just think it's been done. It's a done deal. It's almost like the EFSB board. They listen, but there's little response. They're supposed to oversee it, but it's almost like they're on the side of the utilities, even though they're supposed to be neutral. He said the number a few weeks ago was like 65,000 and feels like the sitting board glossed it over. Between the residents, the town manager, the town attorney, and businesses, everyone came forward to try to fight this, said resident Sandy Jones, a member of the grassroots citizens group Barnstable Speak, which advocates for protection of beaches and water. I don't know what's going to happen next, but there's such a public pushback, we're not going to stop. The sitting board's decision is also applauded in town. Among the organizations pleased to see things progressing is the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. Conversion to renewable energies and this whole notion of I support renewable energy, but just not here, is not a sustainable position, Association Executive Director Andrew Gottlieb said. In a broader context, he said the project represents further move away from fossil fuels, which experts agree is critical to addressing climate change. 
He acknowledged the town does have a legitimate logistical issue, but believes much of the pushback using environmentalism is the cause without foundation. The Vineyard Wind Project, which will begin transmitting first power before year's end, is an example of a beach landing using directional drilling that produced no environmental impacts. As for potential direct impacts from the substations, Gottlieb said, we've looked at the plans around the substations and the containment systems that they're utilizing and are quite comfortable. All of the reasonable steps that can be taken have been taken. The level of care these companies are taking, frankly, goes above and beyond what is done for a lot of other uses that pose greater risks to the environment, he said. The next front page story, Born Select Board asks Georgensen to resign after slur by Rachel Devaney, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Born. Following a unanimous vote Tuesday night by the Select Board calling for his resignation, Carl Georgensen formally resigned as member of the Historical Commission shortly afterward. We find that Mr. Carl Georgensen made an offensive statement on October 10th, said Mary Jane Mastrolangelo, Select Board Chair. The Select Board asked if Mr. asked Mr. Georgeson to resign without permanently restricting other opportunities to serve on town boards. Georgeson submitted a resignation letter to town clerk Barry Johnson Tuesday at about 10 p.m., effective immediately. Georgeson resigned from his appointments to the Historical Commission and the Board of Governors of the Jonathan Bourne Historical Center. The resignation letter was provided to the Times by Mastrolangelo on Wednesday. The decision to ask him to resign came down after he used an anti-Semitic term during an October Historical Commission meeting. After community member Jack McDonald reported Georgeson's comment to the select board, Georgeson made a brief apology during a Historical Commission meeting on November 14th. Further letters and complaints from Bourne residents followed Georgeson's apology, said Mestrelangelo, which prompted the select board to hold Tuesday's public hearing. In order to resign, Georgeson must submit a resignation letter to the town clerk, Barry Johnson. Select board debates Georgeson's future in Bourne. For roughly 30 minutes before the vote, select board members debated on what to do. Select board vice chair, Melissa Ferrati, said Georgeson has served the town well, but action is required. We should be setting the bar high, she said. In this day and age, an apology is not always enough. Ferrati regretted the board took until... December to talk about tolerance and anti-Semitism. It shouldn't have taken us this long to get here, said Georgeson's apology in November didn't sound sincere, said select board member Peter Meyer. Georgeson also apologized during Tuesday's public hearing. He said he deeply regrets the misstatement, is remorseful for offending community members. I still don't see any remorse, said Meyer. Jared McDonald, a select board member, referred to Georgeson's comments as a vibrant and large issue. Everyone is entitled to a mistake, said McDonald. McDonald was unhappy over the criticism the select board received about the length of time the group took to bring the subject up. The select board is governed by rules, regulations, and procedures. We can't bash ourselves as leaders, said McDonald. Due process takes time. Master Angelo said she was conflicted on whether Georgeson's appointment should be revoked. I don't know what the right thing to do is. Eventually, she voted with the other board members to ask for his resignation. The public weighs in. Throughout Tuesday's public hearing, several residents spoke on Georgeson's behalf, including Carl Sifhaus. During Sifhaus' remarks, he said he submitted a letter of support for Georgeson to the select board, which included 36 signatures from residents. Carl has paid his dues and regrets what he said every day 
said Silfhouse, an active member of the Historical Commission. He did nothing criminal. Georgeson's wife, Kathy Georgeson, also spoke on his behalf and said she had has been cursed since his remarks were reported to the media. She said she doesn't feel safe and born any longer. I've had fantasies that someone might come up to my front porch and shoot me or do something crazy like that, like what happened to the Palestinians in Vermont, she said. Robert Zibel, who identifies as an American Jew, said the situation was made worse with what he called Georgeson's half-hearted and mumbled apology in November. To further compound the issue, the board didn't bathe itself in glory by waiting so long to act, letting it fester for two months. Georgeson should have been given the chance to redeem himself in the eyes of the community. He should be willing to talk about his behavior with someone knowledgeable about anti-Semitism. He said Joan Linsky, who is Jewish, said the Anti-Defamation League has reported a significant spike in anti-Semitic incidences in the United States. And now the town of Bourne is on the map, she said. Can Georgeson's comment lead to a change in Bourne? During December 4th select board meeting, Mastrolangelo read a statement from the board. In the statement, Mastrolangelo said Georgeson's remark was anti-Semitic, but it has the capacity to open a deeper conversation among people on the Cape. I have come to understand that a single remark is not the problem, but the reminder of a deeper problem of hate and anti-Semitism that needs to be called out and stopped when it is found, she read in the statement. During Tuesday's public hearing, she said she doesn't want anyone in Bourne to feel unsafe. Master Langelo took a lot of criticism, she said, for not wanting to stir the pot. There are ways to handle things with respect and positive conversation. To focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, Meyer said members of the select board and town manager Marlene McCollum have contacted groups like the Anti-Defamation League and the Craft Group's Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism. Linsky asked the select board to create a task force that can tackle incidences of hate. This is not just about Carl. This is the reflection of the board and the action of the board, said Lisinski. This is a wake-up call for the town of Bourne. In the Cape and Islands section, higher minimum wage for service workers may face voters. By Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. One Fair Wage, a national organization that wants to and sub-minimum wages has collected enough signatures to put a question before voters on the state ballot in 2024, according to the group. Sub-minimum wages are often found in service industries. In Massachusetts, the sub-minimum wage is $6.75 an hour, with the requirement that employees make at least the minimum wage of $15 an hour with tips. Would a one-fair wage law be welcomed on the Cape with hundreds of seasonal restaurants? Some restaurant workers are taking home $30 an hour, Jim Russo, executive director of Eastham Chamber of Commerce, said. If there's a minimum wage, will people say, I don't have to tip? Would servers receive less in tips if customers knew they were getting paid a minimum wage? Or would tipped workers make more money if their base pay went up? Could restaurant owners afford to pay their tipped workers more? Battle lines have been drawn as the petition makes its way through the process that could see it become law. Ending the sub-minimum wage would benefit nearly 240,000 Massachusetts workers, according to One Fair Wage. We're encouraging the full minimum wage be paid and gratuities left up to the customer, One Fair Wage spokesman Angelo Greco said in a November telephone interview. House Bill 1971 and Senate Bill 1213 would raise the minimum wage for tipped workers, an act requiring One Fair Wage, co-sponsored by Senator Patricia Jalen of Somerville, is for all workers whose primary income is tipped base. It calls for a gradual rise in wages so that by 2031, tipped workers will earn 
earn the same as a regular minimum wage worker in the state. Jalen thinks phasing out the tips minimum wage makes sense because the restaurant industry is undergoing a transformation. In principle, I think tipping is relic, she said in a phone interview on December 8th. When people are dependent on tipping, they are so much more vulnerable to harassment and bad treatment from customers and bosses. Stephen Clark, president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, an industry lobbying group, disagrees. He said he's had heard from countless tipped employees who do not want to change the existing system. They earn 30 to $40 an hour, sometimes 50 he said in an interview. They know they will be taking a pay cut if the proposal from out-of-state activists passes. Greco calls that a typical talking point for a restaurant association. Data hasn't shown that wages have dropped in California, Alaska, Oregon, or Washington state. All states with one fair wage laws, he said, people are still tipping a reluctance on Cape Cod to commit. Though the Times reached out to Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce directors, restaurants and owners, and waiters, waitresses, for their comments, most were unwilling to go on record. One restaurant owner, who asked not to be identified, said owners have mixed feelings about the proposed law. Any minimum wage increase would impact the prices on everything, he said, adding that money has come to, has to come from somewhere. His restaurant servers make more than minimum wage or else they wouldn't be there. It is understandable that both restaurant owners and tipped workers would be hesitant to talk on record, Russo and Eastham said. Changing the minimum wage for tipped workers would mean changing the pricing system, and there is some confusion about tipping because of its spread to counter workers, those folks who stand behind counters while customers pay and retrieve their food and drink orders. Both 1213 and 1971 have been referred to the Joint Committee on Labor and Workforce Development. The Secretary of State's office must certify the signatures on the one fair wage ballot petition by the end of January. According to Director of Communications Deborah O'Malley, if the signatures are certified, the office will send the measure to the legislature regardless of the pending House and Senate bills. If a bill isn't passed and enacted before early May, the petition would need to go to a second round of signature gathering. What will eventually be on the 2024 ballot won't be known until July, O'Malley said. Next in the Cape and Island section, height, weight, testimony before legislature on discrimination bill by Stella Tannenbaum, Boston University State House. Massachusetts would become the second state in the nation to ban discrimination based on body size under a proposal aired at a recent hearing of the legislature's Judiciary Committee. During a recent seven-hour hearing in which over 230 people registered to testify on a plethora of bills related to protected classes, state legislators heard testimony on a bill sponsored by Senator Rebecca Rausch of Needham and Tram Nugent Andover that would add height and weight to the list of aspects of identity for which discrimination is illegal, like sex, gender, race, religion, and sexual orientation. Peoples whose bodies do not meet Western beauty standards are often denied basic empathy in their daily lives, let alone equity or inclusion. Fat people face particularly stark discrimination, including wage penalties, barriers to housing, eating disorders, and even lack of access to life-saving medical treatment. Healthcare is a major area of size discrimination, legislators said. 
Rausch said healthcare is one of the major areas in which people experience size discrimination as doctors may overlook serious medical concerns instead of attributing all health concerns to the patient's weight and prescribing weight loss as a prerequisite for other treatments. Samantha Powers of Bigger Bodies Boston said she experienced a year of unnecessary limited mobility and pain after a back surgery three years ago because doctors insisted she try everything under the sun before providing her the outpatient procedure a smaller person would have received right away. Powers said stories like hers established that anti-fat bias and size discrimination exist and that the question before the committee is whether or not it should be prohibited by law. I wonder why it's even a question, really, she said. I ask that you, as my government, protect both large and small people from the discrimination many of us face on a daily basis. The bill has been put forward favorably by the committee before in the exact form in which it appeared on Tuesday. Unfortunately, she said it died in the Senate Ways and Means Committee at the end of the session. Testimony put on a diet at age five. Rachel Ray Estapa, who testified in support of the bill this time and over a year ago, said she was put on a, her first diet at the age of five when she weighed two pounds over what would be considered appropriate for her age, based on the body mass index, a measure of body fat based on weight, height and weight. That set off a whole lifetime of feeling that my body was something to apologize for, to amend for, to change in order to have the prerequisite of dignity. The BMI's effectiveness as a representation has been called into question in recent years, with organizations like the American Medical Association cautioning against its use as a sole diagnostic tool due to its failure to account for differences across races and ethnic groups, sexes, genders, and age groups. But that feeling followed her throughout her life. Astapa said when she contacted COVID-19 in March of 2020, the very early days of its presence in the U.S., she delayed going to the hospital because of it. I couldn't deal with that level of just fear and trauma and feeling that my body again in a time of crisis was something that I had to apologize for. Testimony, Obesity, a Societal and Economic Time Bomb. Penelope Popkin and her mother, Helene Leeds, testified against the bill citing the health risks obesity, obesity poses. Popkin shared her own story of weight loss, and Leeds shared that her mother, Popkin's grandmother, died at the age of 59 with severe obesity on her death certificate. Leeds said the obesity epidemic is a societal and economic time bomb, and she said she is concerned by the bill's support of obese victimization. It's not reversing the public's crisis, but enabling the advancement of the problem. While it's critical to respect and accept individuals affected by obesity, we must acknowledge the reality of its risks and burdens. Following the testimony committee, Chair Senator James Eldridge asked Leeds if she believes employers or the government should be able to discriminate based on a person's body size, requesting a simple yes or no. No, Leeds replied after a brief pause. Testimony, asking people who experience injustice to change. Tigris Osborne, executive director of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, followed testifying in support of the bill and saying Leeds' testimony points to a unique challenge that is all too familiar. We're expected to solve the problems ourselves by changing our bodies. We are told that weight loss is the obvious solution to size discrimination. But is it? Do we hope to solve injustice by telling the people who are experiencing injustice to change? Rausch called body size discrimination an issue of intersectional 
justice. Body size discrimination is intertwined with systemic racism, sexism, and albism. Powers also mentioned body size discrimination's disparate intersectional impact and acknowledged her privilege in that she was able to take time off of work to testify at the hearing. There are many people that this law would protect that cannot be here to represent themselves today, Powers said. Please consider not just my story, but many stories you and I can never know. The next story, Lawmaker ER Protocol Needed for Signs of Alzheimer's by Clara Cho, Boston University State House Program. The prevalence of people with Alzheimer's disease is expected to grow in Massachusetts in the next few years, making the future of Alzheimer's research and resources a priority in Massachusetts communities. In 2020, 130,000 individuals with Alzheimer's disease were living in the state, and this number is projected to grow to 150,000 by 2025, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Amid the aging population in Cape Cod, local organizations and representatives are calling for increased support and resources. The disease is the most common type of dementia. Younger people may get Alzheimer's disease, but it is less common according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The number of people living with the disease doubles every five years beyond the age of 65, according to the agency. As of July 1st, 2022, 33.2% of the population of Barnstable County was age 65 and older, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. We know that dementia-related disease doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family, and by extension, it affects our entire community, said Molly Perdue, the executive director of Alzheimer's Family Support Center in Brewster. So helping people be able to be educated about what they need to know, it's really critical. Approximately 50% of people do not have a formal Alzheimer's diagnosis, according to Purdue. Science has proven that early detection for this kind of disease is key. Representative Danielle Gregor of Marlborough said, The earlier they can detect it, the earlier they can stop it, providing a way to improve the quality of life for the patient and the caregiver. Gregor has pushed for legislation in the past to advance research and development in Alzheimer's. Bill filed to improve care and state senior care options program. Gregor's bill aims to improve Alzheimer's and dementia care in the state senior care options program. It would require a Medicare-Medicaid program in the state to serve eligible seniors with comprehensive care planning services if diagnosed with the disease and other dementias, according to the Alzheimer's Association's 2023-2024 Legislative Priorities Massachusetts Report. The State Senior Care Options Program, which began in 2004, offers the opportunity to receive quality health care by combining health services with social support services and is for individuals aged 65 or older enrolled as Math Health Standard members. Comprehensive care planning can reduce unnecessary rehospitalizations, improve the management of other chronic conditions, and reduce premature nursing home placement, which in turn improves the quality of life for the patient and reduces the cost and burden on our stressed health care system, according to the report. In 2020, the state spent over $1.75 billion for Alzheimer's patients in the MassHealth program, and that number is expected to rise over 15% by 2025. On Cape Cognitive Health Screening Offered Current resources are available at the Alzheimer's Family Support Center offering no-cost services such as cognitive health screening programs 
early intervention, education, and communication with medical professionals. We don't diagnose or treat, but we're able to help people connect to the medical community and provide wraparound support for those dealing with cognitive loss. The Alzheimer's Association also provides resources such as 24-7 hotline 800-272-3900. Additionally, extra protocols are being insured. We are implementing a plan whereby emergency departments would have to have protocol for folks that would come in exhibiting signs of Alzheimer's or related dementia. Sometimes individuals with dementia do not take their medicine and then they can have acute medical emergency, she said. In 2020, 130,000 individuals with Alzheimer's disease were living in Florida, and this number is projected to grow to 150,000 by 2025, according to the Alzheimer's Association. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated Thursday, December 14th. It's time for the obituaries. The first, L. Paul Goyette of Yarmouthport. It is with heavy hearts that we announce the passing of our beloved father, devoted husband, and cherished friend, L. Paul Goyette. Paul passed away unexpectedly at home on Sunday, December 10th, leaving behind a legacy of warmth, compassion, and unwavering faith. Paul was born on February 15, 1934, in Worcester, to parents Leo P. and Anna Lynch Goyette. He graduated from Classical High School in Worcester and received his B.S. degree from Massachusetts College of Pharmacy in 1956 with a degree in pharmacology. He began his career as a pharmacist at Vernon Drugstore in Worcester and later became a pharmaceutical salesman for Abbott Laboratories for 33 years before retiring in 1996. Classical High School is where he met his childhood sweetheart, Mary J. Donahue. They married on June 18, 1955, and lived in Worcester and West Boylston before retiring to the Cape and Seminole, Florida. They were happily devoted to each other for 62 years until God called Mary first on December 28, 2017. Visitation will be at Doan Beale and Ames Funeral Home, 160 West Main Street in Hyannis, on December 15th from 4 to 7 p.m., with a funeral mass at St. Francis Xavier Church on December 16th at 10 a.m., followed by a burial of, at St. Francis Xavier Cemetery in Centerville. Instead of flowers, the family recommends either donating blood or making a charitable contribution. The next, William Francis Markey Jr. of Osterville. William Francis Markey Jr., beloved son, brother, husband, father, and grandfather to his family and friend and mentor to so many, passed away peacefully at his home in Osterville. On December 8th, surrounded by loved ones, he was aged 84. He is survived by his loving wife of 58 years, Elaine Kramer Markey of Osterville, and other loved ones and family. Bill was born on November 22, 1939, in Boston, Massachusetts, to his parents, William F. Markey and Rose Sullivan Markey. He was a graduate of Providence College and Babson College and remained actively involved in both schools. A wake will be held on December 18th from 3 to 7 p.m. at George F. Doherty and Sons in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and a funeral service on December 19th at 11 a.m. at Our Lady of Assumption in Osterville. Intermit will be private. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be made to the Alzheimer's Association. The next, Richard Douglas Silver of Dennis. 
Richard Douglas Silver of Dennis passed away peacefully on December 11th at the age of 102. He was born in Brewster, the son of the late Leon and Marion Silver. He was the beloved husband of Lois Silver for 64 years until her passing in 2011. Dick was an original Cape Codder and direct descendant of the Shiverick family who built eight famous clipper ships in East Dennis. In 1942, he was drafted into the service and was sent overseas during World War II to serve in the United States Army. He was a member of the Armored Tank Division Black Panther Unit stationed during the European theater in both France and Germany. He was honorably discharged in 1946. He received the French Legion of Honor Medal from the French government many years later. Family and friends are invited to attend visiting hours on Monday, December 18th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. with a Masonic service at 12.30 p.m. at Hallett Funeral Home, 273 Station Ave. in South Yarmouth. Intermit will be private. Contributions may be made to, in Richard's memory to the elder services of Cape Cod. The next, Reverend Edward J. Byington of Fall River. A proud son of Sacred Heart Parish in Fall River, following his graduation from BMC Durfee High School, he attended Boston College. From there, he entered the U.S. Army, serving as counterintelligence in West Germany at the height of the Cold War. After briefly pursuing careers in FBI and garment industry, he undertook studies for the priesthood at St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore. He would later recall that an experience at a monastery showed him the joy and peace that came from dedicating one's life to the Lord in comparison with the frenetic pace and spiritual emptiness of the business world. The Most Reverend James L. Connolly, his former pastor, ordained him as a priest on August 15, 1970. Father Bryington served as parochial vicar at St. John Attleboro, Sacred Heart Taunton, St. Patrick Fall River, St. Paul Taunton, St. George Westport, and Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Seekonk, as well as a brief but memorable stint as editor of the Anchor Diocesan newspaper. After traveling, he became pastor of his home parish of Sacred Heart in Fall River. Later, he was assigned to St. Francis Xavier in Hyannis, where he founded St. Francis Xavier Preparatory School in 1996. It should be noted that this school already numbers three priests among his graduates. He next served as pastor of St. Thomas More in Somerset before retiring in June 2006. After retirement, he assisted at St. Augustine in Providence and thereafter at St. Joseph in West Warwick. Funeral services for Father Byington were private. Please remember him in your prayers. The next, J. Albert Fisher of Barnstable. J. Albert Fisher, 73, of Barnstable, a native of the city of Attleboro, passed away unexpectedly yet peacefully at Chip's house in Barnstable, where he had resided for almost two years. Born in Attleboro on February 12, 1950, he was one of four children born to the late Albert J. Fisher and Audrey Eileen Ogilvie, Fisher, raised and educated in the city of Attleboro. He later earned a degree in motor and motel hotel management from the Cape Cod Community College. Along with his family, he attended the First Baptist Church in Attleboro in earlier years. A private funeral service will be held in the Memorial Chapel of the Dyer Lake Funeral Home, 161 Commonwealth Ave, Village of Attleboro Falls in North Attleboro. Burial will follow in North Purchase Cemetery, where Jay will be laid to rest with his beloved parents. Please omit flowers in Jay's memory. Memorial donations may be made to Chip's House, 23 Park Ave in Barnstable, a home that provides long-term 
based housing and support for individuals with head injuries. For additional information or to send the family a written expression of sympathy, you can visit www.dyerlakefuneralhome.com. The next, Jacqueline Jackie Carita Henderson. Jacqueline Jackie Carita Henderson, 81, of Katuit, passed away on December 8th after a brief illness. Jackie was born on February 20th, 1942, to Ida and Joseph Carita in Boston. Upon graduation from high school, she went on to study nursing at Boston City Hospital School of Nursing. After graduating with a degree in nursing and becoming a registered nurse working in hospitals, private nursing care, nursing homes, and finished her 45-year nursing career at Bass River Pediatrics in Yarmouth. In 1973, Jackie met Joseph W. Henderson, and they married in 1974, moved to Ketuit, and went on to have a son. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Monday, December 18th in the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A funeral mass will be celebrated on Tuesday, December 19th at 10.30 a.m. in Christ King Church, Mashpee Commons. Burial will follow in Mosswood Cemetery. Back to our stories. Criminal case backlog trimmed to 4K, court leaders say, by Chris Lisinski, State House News Service. Nearly 4,000 criminal cases that were delayed during the pandemic are still awaiting trial as Massachusetts courts work through a sizable backlog, judiciary officials said Tuesday. Trial Court Chief Justice Jeffrey Locke said the volume of criminal cases awaiting trial has been roughly cut in half from a peak of 8,000 that built up while in-person proceedings were paused during the COVID-19 emergency. It's better than it was, Locke said of the backlog during a panel discussion following Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice Kimberly Budd's State of Judiciary Address. Court officials shifted many operations to remote forums such as Zoom early in the crisis, but Locke said they found that some proceedings did not fit the live video model. Zoom really was not suitable to a contested trial, and especially to a contested criminal trial. For many Venturi motions, it was perceived that in-person presence really is essential. In-person jury trials resumed in April of 2021, and since then, about 4,000 of the 8,000 cases have been cleared. He called the backlog significantly reduced and voiced praise for the remarkable work done by the chief justices of the departments and by all the judges and all the supporting court personnel, clerks, court officers, and all those who ensure that our cases can be marked up and heard. Court officials have also worked through new cases in the meantime, and Locke said over the past fiscal year they achieved a clearance rate of 104%. What that means for the public is that we moved more cases out of the court system than came into court, and bear in mind that we had, in fiscal year 2023, over 700,000 cases filed. So we moved out more than that number, and that indicates as well that we were attacking cases that had been pending for extended periods of time. Some lawmakers and criminal justice reform advocates have voiced concern about the backlog of cases, arguing that imposing years-long delays could frustrate affected communities and impact witness viability. Officials are also working to overhaul the state's judiciary with a bevy of new funding approved in recent years. Governor Charlie Breaker last year signed a roughly $165 million bond bill designed to modernize courthouse operations. Thomas Ambrosini. Zeno, the trial court's administrator, said Tuesday that judiciary leaders plan to spend about $30 million of that funding. This is a five- to six-year implementation plan. We're only a year and a half in, 
Most of this first year and a half has been spent dealing with infrastructure because we had such an infrastructure deficit. Our wiring was old, our connections were old, all of our hardware was old. Most of the work so far has been on areas that are behind the scenes, not things that attorneys or our users can really see, but are nonetheless critical. Officials replaced all desktop computers for core employees, installed new cameras, locks, and keyless entry systems, and rewired buildings to improve network connectivity. Only five of the 94 Massachusetts court buildings have Wi-Fi currently, according to Ambrosino, who said all will add that capability by the end of 2024. Right now, that's a great frustration, not just for attorneys, but for jurors as well, that our buildings don't have Wi-Fi connectivity. This year's state of the judiciary remarks and roundtable discussion come at a point of major transition for the system. Two of the seven justices of the SJC, David Lowry and Elspeth Cipher, plan to leave for other jobs early next year. Locke will soon retire and be succeeded as a trial court chief justice by Heidi Brieger. And Bud said both Boston Municipal Court Chief Justice Rob Ronquillo and reporter of decisions Brian Redman are also approaching their exit. Bud praised the new appointees who recently filled open positions or will soon join the judiciary, and she said to keep up the pace, court officials will need to create and sustain a vision of what we want to accomplish and execute plans for realizing that vision. She outlined four major priorities, improving technology in courts, making the system easier to understand and navigate for users, especially self-represented litigants, re-examining how courts can respond more effectively to the difficult issues that underlie so many of the cases before us, and boosting diversity, equity, and inclusion. Supreme Court to Consider Abortion Pill by John Fritz, USA Today, Washington. Eighteen months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the issue of abortion has returned to the high court. The justices agreed Wednesday to step into the months-long legal battle over the abortion pill and review an appeals court decision that would impose significant restrictions on access to the drug. The case comes as pregnant people, voters, and courts continue to grapple with the decision to wipe out Roe, the landmark 1973 ruling that established a constitutional right to an abortion. A decision would likely land in June. The two cases the court granted, one from the Biden administration, the other from the maker of a generic version of the pill, arrive as the fallout from last year's abortion decision continues to alter the nation's political and legal landscape. This week, several state courts are weighing in high-stakes abortion restrictions. In Texas, the state Supreme Court ruled Monday that Kate Cox, a Dallas-area mother carrying a fetus with a fatal condition, did not qualify for an abortion because her doctor had not met a legal standard required to obtain an exception to the state law. Her lawyer said that Cox chose to have the procedure in another state. The Cox case has refocused attention on the issue of abortion, just as some Democrats are urging President Joe Biden to make it a central theme of his re-election effort. Across the country, we've seen unprecedented attacks on women's freedom to make their own health decisions. This administration will continue to stand by FDA's independent approval and regulation as safe and effective. A federal appeals court in Louisiana this summer said it intended to limit access to Mifepristone, ruling that the Food and Drug Administration overstepped its authority when it made it easier for Americans to obtain the drug by allowing prescriptions to be filled by mail. That ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit was put on hold as both sides prepared to resolve the matter at Supreme Court. 
the fifth circuit's decision dismissed a part of the lawsuit that challenged the fda's underlying approval of the drug at all it also allowed the fda's approval in 2019 of a generic version of the drug to stand notably the supreme court declined to take a separate case that challenged the fda's underlying authority to approve the drug that is likely a signal that whatever the top court does it is likely to focus only on restrictions to the drug not its underlying and decades-long approval critics noted how unusual it is for federal courts to weigh in on drug approval decisions a wide swath of government agencies and outside experts have said that the drug is safer than common drugs such as Tylenol and Viagra, but the anti-abortion group challenging the drug questioned those studies and argued that the FDA didn't follow its own protocols and ignored contrary data as it expedited the drug's approval. In Nation and World Briefs from Wire Report, Bronx Deli fire spreads to other businesses, one person injured. At least one person has been injured after a colossal commercial fire broke out in New York City early Wednesday at a deli and spread to a nearly half dozen businesses in the Bronx. The New York City Fire Department responded to the five-alarm blaze just after 3.30 a.m., reported along West 231st Street and Tom Carraro, NYPD Deputy Fire Chief. The area is in the Kingsbridge neighborhood near a park about one block from the train station. The fire is under investigation right now. We don't have a determined cause. Carraro said during a news conference at the scene it will be a prolonged operation. U.S. to spend $700 million to open new embassy in Ireland, Washington. The Biden administration has notified Congress that it intends to spend nearly $700 million to buy a former Dublin hotel, demolish it, and construct new buildings to turn the site into the new U.S. embassy in Ireland. The State Department also announced that it had broken ground on a new embassy complex in Saudi Arabia as part of a revamp of its diplomatic facilities in the Gulf. The department informed lawmakers late Monday that it plans to buy the former jury's hotel in Dublin's upscale Ballsbridge neighborhood for $171 million, associated costs including the design and construction of the new chancery and furnishing it will bring the total to $688.8 million, according to a notice sent to Congress. The new compound will include the embassy, a residence for Maine, Marine Guards, support facilities, and parking, the notice said. Pope says he wants to be buried in Rome Basilica, not Vatican. Rome. Pope Francis says he wants to be buried in the Rome Basilica of St. Mary Major, not in the grottoes of the Vatican like other popes, so he can be near his favorite icon of the Madonna. Francis, who turns 87 Sunday, also said he never thought about resigning this year despite a series of health scares. While the job of the Pope is for life, Francis reconfirmed the possibility of resignation and said he has to prepare for any possibility. I asked the Lord to say enough at some point, but when he wants me to, he said. Francis has already said if he retires as Pope Benedict the sixteenth did in 2013, he would want to live outside the Vatican somewhere in Rome in a residence for retired priests. Rembrandt portraits in private cachet go on display in Amsterdam, The Hague, Netherlands. After nearly 200 years in a private collection, a pair of small portraits by 17th century Dutch master Rembrandt went on display Wednesday after a long-term loan to the Netherlands National Art and History Museum. The Rijksmuseum said the portraits of John Willems van der Plume and his wife 
Japan disappeared from view almost two centuries before resurfacing two years ago. The paintings believed to be the last known pair of privately held Rembrandt portraits. They were sold at auction this year and given on long-term loan by the family of wealthy Dutch businessman Henry Holterman, and the, the museum said the portraits were hung alongside other works by Rembrandt. People in the news. Actor Andre Brouwer dies at 61. Andre Brower, the Emmy-winning actor best known for his roles on the series Homicide, Life on the Street, and Brooklyn 99, died Monday at the age of 61. Brower's publicist, Jennifer Allen, told the Associated Press the actor died after a short illness. The Chicago-born actor and his, had his breakthrough role in 1989's Glory, starring alongside Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, who won an Oscar for the film about an all-black Army regiment during the Civil War. But he would establish himself with the role of Detective Frank Pembleton, which he would play for seven seasons in Homicide. Life on the Street, a gritty police drama on NBC based on a book by David Simon, who would go on to create The Wire. He would win his first career Emmy for the role, taking the trophy for lead actor in a drama series in 1998. He would win his second for lead actor in a miniseries or movie for the 2006 limited series Thief on FX. Brower would be nominated for 11 Emmys overall. Years later, he would play a very different kind of cop on a very different kind of show, shifting to comedy as Captain Ray Holt on the Andy Samberg starring Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It would run for eight seasons from 2013 to 2021 on Fox and NBC. Ryan to become music director of Charlotte Sympathy. Kwame Ryan was hired Tuesday as music director of the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra in North Carolina and given a four-year contract to start with the 2024-2025 season. The 53-year-old succeeds Christopher Warren Green, who stepped down after the 2021-22 season, his 12th as a music director. Ryan will serve as music director designate for the remainder of the season and then devote 10 to 12 weeks per season to the orchestra. Born in Toronto to parents from Trinidad and Tobago, who were studying there, Ryan moved to Uganda with his parents as a baby and spent most of his youth in Trinidad. He decided to become a musician after seeing Star Wars in 1977 and hearing John Williams' score. He attended boarding school in England and then Cambridge, studied with Britain's National Youth Orchestra, and worked with conductor Mark Elder and composer-conductor Peter Ivetos. Ryan conducted contemporary music exclusively, often with the Ensemble Modern, before he became general music director of the Freiburg Opera and Freiburg Philharmonic Orchestra in Germany from 1999 to 2003. In local sports, high school roundup, Tuesday's Cape Cod scores and highlights by Courtney Jacobs, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The Nauset Boys and Girls Indoor Track Team went a combined 4-0 in their season opening meet. The Nauset Girls defeated Nantucket 94-4 and St. John Paul II 79-21. Nauset sophomore Violet Roche won the long jump with a jump of 16 03.25, and she won the high jump, breaking her previous school record with a jump of 5-02. For the boys, the Warriors beat the Nantuck Nantucket 65-25 and St. John Paul II 76.5-18.5. And other high school action, girls indoor track, Barnstable 59, Martha's Vineyard 39. Chloe Dipp was a double winner for the Red Hawks in the 300-meter and 600-meter. Boys Indoor Track, Barnstable 52, Martha's Vineyard 25, 
Daniel Sanderson and Willie Fajardo Dose placed first and second in the 55 meters and 6.98 and 7.04, respectively. Girls basketball, Dennis Yarmouth, 67, Cape Cod Academy, 30. Chloe Azoff scored 23 points to lead the Dolphins 1-0 to a season opener road win over the Seahawks. St. John Paul II, 52, Nantucket, 22. The Lions, 2-0, scored 52 in back-to-back games to start the season as they beat the Whalers 0-3. Marlow Jumper had 15 points. Falmouth, 63, Monomoy, 42. Tegan Lind had 26 points to lead the Clippers 1-0 in the season opener win over the Sharks. Nosset, 55, Martha's Vineyard, 40. The Warriors picked up their first win of the season as they handed Vineyarders their first loss. Boys basketball, Bourne 66, Nantucket 39. After a round of eight appearance in the MIAA state tournament last season, the Canalmen started their road back to the postseason with the season opener road victory. Monomoy 62, Falmouth 54. In the first game of the season for both teams, the Sharks edged out a win over the Clippers. Barnstable 71, New Bedford 64. The Red Hawks are off to a 2-0 start for the first time in a decade. Upper Cape 44, South Shore Voke 36. The Rams started their season with a win led by freshman Sam Reynolds with a game-high double-double of 14 points and 17 rebounds. Martha's Vineyard 58, Nauset 50. The Vineyarders, who made the MIAA playoffs round of 16 last season, started this year with a win over the Warriors. Girls swimming and diving, Nantucket 95, Nosset 74. The Whalers picked up the win over the Warriors. Boys swimming and diving, Nosset 91, Nantucket 56. The Warriors beat the Whalers. In the Ask Carolyn section, Dear Carolyn, my sister, her husband, and their toddler moved cross-country to be closer to family. Since they've arrived, my retired parents have been less helpful than perhaps my sister and brother-in-law had anticipated. Maybe this will change when their child gets older and is less of a terrible toddler. But to make up for some of this lack of help, I felt compelled to step in and help with cooking and cleaning, pick up from daycare, babysitting, two days a week. My work is flexible. I'm interested in helping my sister, and I have the time. My husband and I are child-free by choice, and he's not interested in spending much time around a toddler, for which I don't blame him. My concern is that we may eventually resent the situation that we're in. I don't want my sister to feel isolated after moving across the country for some help. I also don't want my husband to feel abandoned because he really didn't sign up for this. Any advice? Dear Aunt, Communication, that's where you begin and maybe stay. You don't mention whether your husband objects or feels any resentment. You didn't ask about this specifically, but I hope at least someone in your family is aware and wary of some assumptions embedded in your question. The only guarantee to your sister's move to be closer to family was less physical distance. Even if your parents made huge promises to help, there's no system for collecting on such promises. What if parents and sis had different definitions of help? What if someone got sick? Any lack of help this family has experienced upon their arrival is actually rooted in their well-intentioned mistake for making assumptions. Anything volunteered and unpaid is nice to have. Must-haves? 
need plan Bs. I'm spelling this out because such assumptions and boundary blurrings often are family traits. Instead of the work of one individual member, and if you've carried some obligation or guilt wiring from your origin family into your marriage family, then that might create problems for you with your husband, especially if you're just assuming all this and not talking it through. Look at your language. You're doing this to make up for your parents and you feel compelled. You frame two days a week on a pursuit outside your marriage as abandonment. This is all conjured. There's no obligation or abandonment. There's only wanting or not wanting to help. Plus mindfulness at home. If you're talking about seeing a beloved family member working super hard to hold it together and you love her and want to ease her burden and you're transparent with your husband about that, then yay for you. That's great stuff. Help away. But that's feeling compelled by your own love and your own values, which is something completely different from being compelled by a presumed obligation. And we end our reading today with Today in History. Today is Thursday, December 14th, the 348th day of 2023. There are 17 days left in the year. On this date in 1799, the first president of the United States, George Washington, died at his Mount Vernon, Virginia home at the age of 67. In 1819, Alabama joined the Union as the 22nd state. In 1861, Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria, died at Windsor Castle at the age of 42. In 1911, Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen and his team became the first men to reach the South Pole, beating out a British expedition led by Robert F. Scott. In 1939, the Soviet Union was expelled from the League of Nations for invading Finland. In 1961, a school bus was hit by a passenger train at a crossing near Greeley, Colorado, killing 20 students. In 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court in Heart of Atlanta Motel v. United States ruled that Congress was within its authority to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1964 against racial discrimination by private businesses. In this case, a motel that refused to cater to blacks. In 1981, Israel annexed the Golan Heights, which it had seized from Syria in 1967. In 1985, Former New York Yankees outfielder Roger Maris, who'd hit 61 home runs during the 1961 season, died in Houston at the age of 51. In 1986, the experimental aircraft Voyager, piloted by Dick Rutan and Jenna Yeager, took off from Edwards Air Force Base in California on the first non-stop, non-refueled flight around the world. In 2006, a British police inquiry concluded that the deaths of Princess Diana and her boyfriend, Dodi Fayed, in a 1997 Paris car crash were, was a tragic accident and that allegations of a murder conspiracy were unfounded. Atlantic Records founder Amet Etigrun died in New York at the age of 83. In 2012, a gunman with a semi-automatic rifle killed 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, then took his own life as police arrived. The 20-year-old had also fatally shot his mother at their home before carrying out this attack on the school. In 2013, actor Peter O'Toole, who achieved instant stardom as Lawrence of Arabia and was nominated eight times for an Academy Award without winning, died in London at the age of 81. In 2020, the largest vaccination campaign in U.S. history began with health work workers getting shots on the same day the nation's COVID-19 death toll hit 300,000. 
Also this year, the Electoral College decisively confirmed Joe Biden as the nation's next president, ratifying his November victory in a state-by-state of presidential Donald Trump's refusal to concede he had lost. Electors gave Biden 306 votes to Trump's 232. And in 2021, Stephen Curry set a new NBA career three-point record. The Golden State Warriors guard hit his 2,974th three-point shot against the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Thursday, December 14th, 2023. Have a great day.